You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. Welcome. This is uh, the Living Truth Radio Broadcast. We are delighted that you are joining us, uh, either in your vehicle or at home listening on the internet. And uh, this is a program where we uh, engage in theological discussion through the Word of God. And uh, we are just uh, two friends who like to get together and just talk about the Lord and His Word. And we imagine that you are joining us, uh, eavesdropping, so to speak, on what we're talking about. And uh, if you are new to our program, we uh, have been going through the book of Ruth. And we have thoroughly enjoyed discussing. I don't know about you. I have enjoyed. Uh, I have enjoyed even, it you know, completely. Yes. I can't hear you move your ear. Completely. Now everybody else can hear you now. <laughs> you speak up a little bit. You have a loud voice, so turn up your microphone. Completely. So this this one, this is actually probably our last program in the book of Ruth. We are at the very end. And I, I'm going to make a promise here. And I, <laughs> I know I got into trouble before if I, you know, said we we're going to finish. But we are finishing this week on the Book of Ruth, and it has been a wonderful journey. And we hope that you have enjoyed it. Um, just digging in uh, to uh, the scripture, and there's a lot uh, in this book that we did not talk about that we could have, but it's because of time and and uh, just the Lord's leading, we didn't get to. But today we're going to finish up and this wonderful story that has um, really, in, in one sense, you can understand why it's included in Scripture, the depth of it and the theology of it and the the richness of of the characters in the story. And, and, and in one sense, the reality of how, how true the life the story is. Um, this, this story is is one of, of difficulty, of one of hardship, one of, of a lot of trials, uh, of, of things that people go through in life just to try to get by, uh, wondering about the future, wondering about where God's at in, in the midst of life. This story, this uh, I like to recount rather, to me is, is, is true the real life, the way I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't always hear the voice of God every Tuesday morning or Thursday morning, whatever. But this story really encourages me because you see God in the story at key areas in life, and yet you also have, in some, in some sense, God's silence, where uh, the people in the story are real people, and I can relate to these people because oftentimes we go through long periods of time where we don't know what God is doing, we don't know where God's at, and yet somehow, in some way, God is directing the individual lives and the totality of the story for his glory. Yeah, it's it's um it's important for us to realize that normatively um individuals who are believers do not always every day outside of scripture hear the voice of God. And I think that's essential. What would surprise people is Jesus the son of God, very God, very man did not every single day hear that and and here's a here's a case in point in the garden of gethsemane we have the son praying right and we have the son pleading and we are not given a record of the father's response uh, the son is walking in an understood obedience namely um 
not my will, but thine be done. And we're not told that the father said no. We just understand that it was an understood no by the son's pleading and his acquiescence to what the father's will was redemptively. And and what's interesting, too, I think, is that and before we get into the text, is that oftentimes, you know, you can. You can say, well, look back at where God was at in life, you know, and you can reflect and understand that and say, wow, this, you know, whether it's your story uh, or whether it's the story that you're reading, you can reflect back on what God did. But sometimes you're like, okay, God, what about now? And it's those silent times where really the, the, the testing, I think, takes place. Because you have, on one hand, you say, God, you were so faithful. And I can see in four chapters in, in this book of Ruth, I see in four chapters, okay, in certain times, you impacted the people in the story. In my life, as I reflect, yeah, there's key areas. But then there's some times where, you know, if you're like, uh, you're like Ruth in the story, and she's back in chapter two, gleaning in the fields, and she's working day in, day out, and doing what she's doing. And Naomi is doing what she's doing day in, day out, the daily grind. You don't have the sense of God's working, but you have to trust that. And that's the that's sort of the the balancing point, so to speak, where on the one hand, you know God has been faithful in the past, that he has shown himself faithful to the children of Israel and people in the past and the people in the Bible. But at the same time, you're like, I need that to get through this very day. How does that happen, God? And that's really, I think in one sense, where we need to be because we have to understand that nothing can happen in life. Nothing can advance uh, in, in, our, in our walk of faith without having to live each moment by moment by, moment by faith. And to live sort of like, not in the now, but really in the saying, I'm trusting God, though I can't see him or feel him or touch him. I have to trust he's the same God as he was in the past. In, in many ways, um, the silence of God in the life of the believer is um, just as important as the voice of God yeah. in the life of the believer because it is a time of development yeah. and and so it is in fact crucial and this is not the only book that you will find that in and this is not the only personality in scripture that you'll find that in and if you are listening by radio you're not the only person who will find yourself in that circumstance there were times when god will speak um, and there are times there are times when god will necessarily and developmentally for your purposes not speak and it doesn't mean that he's not moving it doesn't mean that he's not acting in fact god is omnipresent i wish we had time to go into that right. but on a theological scale it's impossible for god not to be there right. but god can work in such a way that he um uh, works on your capacity to be aware or not aware of his presence yeah. and and he can work in such a way that although he's there you cannot detect him in the least but those periods if you will are are developmental in nature and i would argue scripturally necessary in nature and, and just just before we go into i think those those times are more often than the other times like the times where you hear from god in one sense when I, I mean, obviously, if you're reading scripture, you're hearing from God as you're reading this word. But the times where you, you wrestle with, okay, the silence of God are probably more important. 
because in one sense, that's the area of trust that you're living in. You're, you're walking by faith, and it's those times where God is, is doing something unseen to your eye that, that is, is profound, and it is something that, that he, only He can get the glory, where we don't realize what God is, and, and we have to trust. And it all comes down to that, can we trust God to do and be who he said he's going to be. And even at the point where, where we've given up hope, and, 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 and this ties in, I think, with Naomi, because Naomi, when you start the book of Ruth, Naomi had given up hope. She had come back from, um, from Moab, having lost her, her, her husband and her, her two sons, and she comes back as this woman who has really given up hope, and the story starts there. And in one sense... We have focused so much attention on on Ruth and Boaz and the, you know these other characters in the story, and Naomi, in one sense, had she still has that you know she she has this you know she, she's not bitter any longer, but there's still the sense of you know what about Naomi? And I think the way the story ends, it brings the story our attention is it's going to bring our attention back to her that God has not forgotten about Naomi. And I think that's a significant key in the story. Let, let's start reading in the in the in chapter four. I'll start reading in verse thirteen. It says, "So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, "Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may His name become famous in Israel. May He." Also, be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid it him upon in her lap, and he and became his nurse. And the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, "A son has been born to Naomi." So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. Let's dig in. (laughs) Well, last week, we mentioned uh, with uh, verse number 13 that the women were expressing the value of uh, Ruth to Naomi in um, uh, hyperbole or hyperbolic language, as it were. And it's kind of interesting because seven times within the narrative, this term kala is used for daughter-in-law, right? And uh, uh, But this is the first time within the framework of the book that the relationship is acknowledged by a character. And the women are really noting Ruth's love for Naomi, but it's important to note what is being appreciated by the women, not the expression of love that we always park on poetically in chapter number one, but the realization of love. And now this term for love that is used is a hav, but it's reaching back to demonstration within the framework of chesed. Right. It's that it, and it means more than verbal. It's it's the actions of love. It's the faithfulness of love. It's the dedication, the commitment, the the sort of stick to itness, faithfulness, uh, 
despite when you don't want to, you still do it because that's what love's all about. It's not just this emotional word. It's proven in action more than just word. And, and, and the idea here, uh, if I may say, is that this word ahav and this concept of chesed are now kind of sharing some similarities. One, um, passing the baton to the other, but there is a place in which they both touch the baton, as it were. And the touching of the baton is in this area. Not the emotiveness, as it were, but the self-sacrificial nature of her love covenantally that is expressed in a way or in a manner where she is clearly, for a period of time, disadvantaging herself for the forward motion and for the self-advancement, or for the advancement, rather, of her mother-in-law. And, and that's clearly seen, and they recognize it now as a community. And, and, but what's interesting is, is in the... You have this chorus of women that were there in the first chapter. Can this be Naomi? There's a buzz in the air, you know, when they come back. And Naomi, she doesn't look the same. She looks older. You know, life has has been hard on her, and you can tell. Can this be Naomi? You know, and they and they greet her. Now at the end, the same women, perhaps, or similar women of the city or the town. It's interesting how how the story has has so focused on Ruth and Boaz and the Redeemer, in one sense, Boaz being that Redeemer in that sense of of taking care of a name for Elimelech, you know, of of doing everything they could to make sure that this man's name doesn't die off, right? The actions of Boaz and Boaz is that Redeemer. But then there's a shift because at this section here, they switch their attention back to Naomi. Yes. And they say, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. There's this change there. Because the change there is from a redeemer for Elimelech in one sense, and a redeemer in the sense of progeny in his name. But now they focus now, there's a different, I think there's a different meaning to redeemer in verse 14 than before. Because in verse 14, it seems to to point to the child that's been born. Okay? That this child is going to in one sense, um, take care of you. Okay, not physically yet because you're t- he's going to be too young. But in one sense, when you came back from Moab, Naomi, you were bitter, you were empty, you were just you were just spent. But now there's hope in this child. This child has given you hope, emotional hope, spiritual hope, knowing that okay, maybe one day he'll he'll work out in the fields for you. But there's something in the sense that you have something to live for, so to speak. You know, and I think it's significant that. That um, that they're calling that this child is going to lead to somebody famous, you know, and that that he is going to be this restorer of life in your old age. But they're focusing on Naomi, and as if to say, God has said to Naomi, and if you're listening, as you are listening in in the in the public here, there are Naomi's out there, yes, who have thought God has forgotten me, and the word of the Lord to you is that God has not forgotten you. And though it seems like all this other activity is going on, you know, with Ruth and Boaz and success and all that, God has not forgotten, and He has not forgotten Naomi. I think it's so significant that that somehow Naomi now is is fit in as, and Naomi is going to become the head of the genealogy that we read. Actually, it's going to begin with Naomi. In verse sixteen, Naomi took the child and and became his nurse, and it says a son has been born to Naomi, and then. 
they call him Obed, and it goes on from there. So there's a significant shift, I think, that speaks volumes of the Lord remembering a Naomi and remembering this this woman who has gone through a lot. I, I want to I want to dovetail off that, and I want to do that because I think your your practical point uh, is is well taken, and I think it's absolutely accurate. I want to approach it from a different direction from the Hebrew text directly because the translation I don't think the translation that we receive in the English text is the best translation. There, what are you talking about? What verse uh, in in verse number uh, fourteen? Then the women said to Naomi, blessed as I am who has not left you without a redeemer. Right. Right. And, and really, um, the idea of the text is really in the Hebrew text, a direct translation would be, he has not stopped for you a family protector today. In other words, it highlights on the negative. And, and here's why I think this, this is important. Number one, what we would res- expect in the direct Hebrew text would be, we would have expected the positive who has given to you a family protector today. And that's what most of the translators go right. with. But in this particular instance, the idea in the stating of the negative is in not inferring, uh, interfering rather with the process of allowing Ruth to have a child, God did not in fact prohibit it and he spared Naomi from further tragedy and she now would have a protector. In other words, what you see in chapter number one it's kind of a domino effect right, um, right, right. That, that starts with the famine and her husband's choice back in Bayit Lechem. And so now that domino effect leads to the death of uh, her husband, Elimelech, and leads to the death of Machlan and Kilian, her boys. Her protectors. Yes. And so now the idea of the text as stated in the negative is basically this way. You know, Naomi, if in fact I am would have wanted to, he could have allowed the ball of tragedy to continue to roll in the direction that it was rolling. But he has not stopped you from experiencing good. And the idea then I think is really important in connection with what you were saying, John, namely that, that if God wanted the tragedy to go on, he really could have. And, and for a lot of individuals who are listening, uh, they may have drank the bitter waters, but the reality is we should be grateful when we receive sweet water because that's not incidental, coincidental, happenstantial, haphazard. It, it's not accidental in any way. It is because God has discontinued one move and allowed another move of blessedness so that what we see is God is directly involved in both the tragedy of life and the blessing of life. And we shouldn't take it casually or incidentally when God veers the traffic from one direction of tragedy to another direction of blessing. You know, what's interesting, and and hopefully we get to the genealogy today because it will be our last, but all the efforts that that took place in the previous chapter or two with with um, protecting or with with making sure that the name of Elimelech is lived on, right? All of the efforts of Boaz and Ruth, you know, of of honoring this this dead man or making sure that the children are raised in his name. You know, what's interesting is when you look at the scripture, you look at the genealogy. His name isn't there. You you have his his name mentioned in chapter in Ruth, obviously, but when you look at the genealogy of save Jesus. Boaz is mentioned, not Elimelech. 
which means that okay perhaps in what God is honoring is is still allowing Elimelech's name to be lived on in this book or through this book okay remember who he is he hasn't died off but he has not forgotten the faithfulness of Boaz he has not forgotten the faithfulness of Ruth as seen in the genealogy later on of Jesus Christ and he has not forgotten as we said before the faithfulness or the the um, the hardship that that Naomi's gone through, and he has he has honored her uh, with with a significant place in in history. Now, let's I guess let's jump into if we can because we're gonna run out of time perhaps into this genealogy because the book in one sense could have ended with the announcing of David in verse seventeen. You know that could have been enough because in one sense you can say well Ruth was written you know it's and it it shows us sort of how we got David you know and shows us the history of David who David was you know so it could have ended with verse 17 Jesse was the father of David you know but it doesn't you know and it's significant here that there's a it's not an attachment the last three verses 18 through 12 four verses well one two three four five verses (laughs) 18 through 22 is not an attachment. There is, there is, in one sense, there is, there's a looking back to the previous, but there's a, there's a connection between the, the story of Ruth and this genealogy that I think is significant in a sense of, in Ruth, you have, a, you have the women very active in the story. You have the role of women that are very important in the history of David, in the line of David. But then you switch to the 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 male-dominated sort of genealogy. So and so was the father. So and so. So there's a there's a linking to of the two. It's not to say the men are only important and women aren't. The story of Ruth highlights the fact that women are tremendously important. I think it's a beautiful marriage, though, the fact that both are significant in the story. And um, so perhaps we should uh, dive into. Uh, Absolutely. I, I would encourage the individuals who are reading the book, just be certain that you're paying attention to the details of the verse, because as a result of our time, we can't go through the restore, the, the, the fact that uh, this child is going to be a servant of God to Naomi. Um, right. He's going to be a restorer of her nephesh. In other words, he's going her to soul. be life yeah. in her old age. He's actually going to fulfill for her the Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5 clause of parents that are honored. He's going to actually take care of her, and she actually receives an elevation that we didn't talk about, a promotion, because that promotion is, for the first time in the book, she moves to grandmother. Right. And and that is an honored state that is really highlighted in that area of the book. So he's going to become a significant figure. Now, no pressure on the kid. Can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's grown up, you know, and a little... uh, What's his name? Obed? Yeah. It, which, Obed. Which comes hey, from Avad. To, to serve. Right. You know, okay, Obed, you're, now you're a servant now, so you make sure you live up to the... You know, it's, and it's, it's interesting because there's, there's, there's hope given to her. You know, here she's, she's going to watch. She's older, obviously, you know, and she's going to watch this child grow up and, and just see... And every time she looks at Obed, in her mind, in her heart, is all of the history that led up to his, to this birth. I mean, there's there's uh, the 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 whole history of all of her losing her, her 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 family and and everything else culminates in the birth of this child. And this child has no idea what kind of beautiful role that he plays in her life, and how precious. How in one sense she has been encouraged, and now she can look forward to future things to come with him. 
particularly, not, yeah, particularly because he's a link. He's a link. Now she doesn't know he's going to be the link to David. She doesn't know that. Just she just knows that this child has 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 meant the world to me. This child has has given me a new a new lease on life, and and so that's a beautiful thing. And and it didn't take a voice from God to say. Naomi, here you go. There's a child for you. No, she can see that, and you can just know that there is a, a, a significance of that. And maybe, perhaps, older in her older age, that he will, you know, provide for her and things like that. But I think emotionally and spiritually and psychologically, um, this is significant, and it's from the Lord's doing. So, and 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 there is also a cognition by the women who are in the book because you have. I'm going to use a fanciful term, right? You have here a hapax legomenon scenario. That and, means it's and only a used first one time, time yeah. or an only time, really, that this is actually occurring within the framework of the Bible, right. either Old or New Testament. And that is that uh, that the the women aid in the naming of the child. Uh, the 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 chorus, as it were, right. um, the townswomen, if you will, and these townswomen who aid in this, they're not necessarily giving the name arbitrarily, uh, absent from the parents, but they are aiding in the process and. and highlighting the significance of this child who is going to be a link. So there are several things that are happening in the text that are that are abnormal but are most glorious. But John, here's something that really strikes me in this particular text and I think it's important uh, to mention this that for the normal reader, uh, the normal individual would look at the text of Scripture and believe the lie that genealogies are the sleeping pills of the Bible. Oh no. <laughs> I mean not I mean to, to the uh, the average, you know, maybe the person out there that doesn't like there's significance. If you're looking at genealogy, um okay, let me just pause here. As a, okay, lately recently I've gone on to like ancestry and, and whatever cuz you know my son's like he wants to know about our history. It's interesting to see where you come from. You know, looking back, it's interesting to see, wow, where did my relatives come from? Oh, they came at this time, and they, you know, I wonder, you know, you can look back and, and maybe there's some significance in what they did or didn't do, or whatever. But it sort of gives you, it gives you a richness of what, what your family is all about. And the Bible doesn't give a lot of genealogies. No, they're very rare. Yeah. That's what most people wouldn't realize. You find genealogies very rare in Scripture. You find them in Genesis. Genesis, yeah. Uh, you find them in Chronicles, one and two Chronicles. Numbers. Uh, you well, find numbers are just a list doesn't give genealogy, just numbers. Yeah. Right. You find a very brief one here in the Book of Ruth. Yep. You actually find them also in uh, Matthew's Gospel yep. and in Luke's Gospel. Right. But. Genealogies are very rare. Now you have to ask the question: If they are that they are that rare, with all that God has to say, is He just going to take up time or room with names, or is there some kind of significance of a redemptive nature right. to the content that is found within the collection of those names? And I would argue that in fact there is great significance. So I'm, I'm suggesting to our listeners perk up and listen because uh, this is important. Okay, so with with this genealogy, obviously it it, it starts uh, it goes back to Perez. Now you would think if you're if you know you know the, the highlights of Scripture, you would think it would go back to perhaps. A Judah, 
you know, it goes back to to Prez, which was a, a son of Judas. So that's there is a right off the bat, it does something unexpected with who it's related to. Why does it go back to Perez? What does he have to do? Why why not Judah? And and so um, perhaps we can discuss that as we get started here. Well, I think it's important for individuals to know that uh, within this particular um, concept, um, what you see here in this genealogy uh, borrows from the Toledoth formula, right. which the center word of that is Yalad, the, the birthing formula, well, right? It's just in, in, in the book of Genesis... Toledoth means generations. Generations. It says these are the generations, or this is the history of. That's the word, the Hebrew word Toledoth. And the equivalent of that in the New Testament is Geneseos, right. which is these are the generations, generations as yeah. it were, yeah. in translation. So, so it, to start with, this is a familial line. It's a record line. But it's not just a record line. It's a pedigree line. Now, those are two different things right. that intertwine because it not only speaks to where you come from, right generation or familial lineage or line but it also speaks to the qualitative nature right from whom you come right which which i'm interrupting but which perhaps answers the question why it starts with perez because of the the qualitative similar sim, similarities between the story here in Ruth and that of perez which which from Judah and Tamar came about Pertaining to the the quality of this line, there's something interesting in a Davidic psalm that most people miss. Now, they are very aware of most of the information in the psalm. This is a messianic psalm in Psalm 16. They are very aware of a great deal of the messianic information. Like, for instance, this is where David prophesies. And uh, in Acts chapter number 2, Peter affirms this prophecy as a prophecy concerning not David himself, but a prophecy concerning David's greatest son, namely the Messiah. And here he speaks of his body not being left in Sheol and also not being allowed to experience decay. And of course, David would eventually inevitably uh, uh, experience decay. But in this verse, David actually makes a personal comment. And uh, that comment is dual in its in its uh, in its efficacy. It's dual concerning number one. It's efficacious concerning David, and it's also going to be efficacious concerning Christ. It's something that both persons can say, or it can be said of both persons. In verse number six, uh, I'll start at verse where, number where five. Are you? At Psalm sixteen, verse number five. I am is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The key verse, yes. verse six, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Yes. In other words, what the Psalter is arguing is the pedigree aspect, not just the familial tracing, as it were, but the fact that David had a qualitative background of people who were courageous and godly, but you know what's interesting is in once and what David's doing here is reflecting back, and in another sense, in in in, in another sense, um, when you're reading Ruth and you're, if you're reading Ruth and you're among the first hearers, you're you're looking forward because you're saying where did David come from, from Ruth forward to David, right? Okay, so this was there's a maybe a cross cross link there that. You can look back at the people you came from and say, oh, yeah, I had generals in my family. I had 
you know, great people in my family, you know, and you can, you can be that person that says, I had a Ruth in my family, right? I had, um, I had a, a Boaz in my family. But then you, in one sense, you can look back and see, well, I had a Perez in my family, but Perez came about because there was a Judah, and Judah wasn't too great because at the time he kind of, he was kind of a turkey, you know. And in other words, that there's there's times when you look at genealogy and say, yeah, there's these great people. They're not. I mean, I had a. Well, this guy wasn't so great. I, I had a. I had a. I had a. A convict in my family, where I had a. I don't know. I'm just making things up. A questionable a dark question, figure. A, a, yeah, and <laughs> and what I think is uh, maybe not all, particularly about this genealogy in itself, other than Perez, because of the circumstances of his birth. But I look at genealogy of Jesus and I see, I see some questionable people in his genealogy. And, and I think what's interesting is that God doesn't like stack the deck and say, okay, I'm only going to list the good people in your family. No, he's going to be honest and point out everybody, even the, the uncle so-and-so you don't want to associate with anymore or cousin so-and-so or great-grandmother so-and-so that was questionable. There's something redemptive in that as well, because as if to say, God is able to bring some good people out of some really terrible circumstances, you know, and there's nothing to be ashamed of that, you know. And I think with starting with Perez in the genealogy of David, David is going to be the most important character in the Old Testament, other than Moses and perhaps Abraham. David is, I mean, so much of the scripture in the Old Testament is written concerning David. And then... A lot of the prophecies, of course, related to the Messiah as the son of David, highlight this Messiah as being the best David you can think of, or the poster child of what we want is like a David, you know? So David is very crucially a key to the story, but how he starts off in this comparison between Perez and David is significant, I think. It it certainly is significant. I think it's also important for our readers to know that the goal of uh, genealogies within Scripture is not to give you an exhaustive list of every person within the familial line. No. Um, They are for certain other reasons. Like, for instance, you have 10 names within the framework of this particular genealogy. Right. And with those 10 names, if we were to take just those 10 names as what we call in theological circles a closed genealogy, well, the names of these individuals would actually chronologically add up to about 800 years in time. Right. And so we know that people were not living as long at this particular and, time. And so it, this is more of an open genealogy where the names are specific fixed names in order to get to a purpose or an end. And it's, you see that also in, in the genealogy of Jesus, you know, Correct. The, the 14 generations of 14, you know, and that's not to say that, the, the, the scriptural, the writer isn't interested in history. As we think of history, you know, reporting every single fact that happens, the scriptural, the writer of scripture is interested in history from a theological perspective. So you have these open genealogies or these linear genealogies or, that is serving a purpose. It's not to tell us every single event because that would fill up too many volumes. It is to make a significant point as to... Um, who is there and, and they want to highlight certain things. So if to their modern reader, we would think approach it as being, well, this is not really true to history. Well, every historian writes it from a certain perspective of what he's trying to prove or what he's trying to present or persuade to. Here, we're highlighting a history that is God's history and highlighting certain things that he's going to incorporate into this family of David. 
I also think it's important to mention concerning genealogies that they tell a surprising story, albeit in different ways. Every single genealogy, of course, has names. That's understood. But God tells a story through those names in various ways. Like, for instance, I'll give an analogy here. Did you know that in Genesis chapter number five, the genealogy with the names actually tell the events prophetically leading up to the flood and when the flood will occur. Yes. Now, that's unique. Now, you can't go into Just by the names. Just by the names. That's cool. It really is. So you could read over that and say, well, it's not significant. Oh, you'd be surprised because Methuselah's name means in the year he dies. Right. And then the person who comes after him is Noah. Noah. Rest. rest. So in the year that he dies, rest will come. Yes. And how did that come? Through a deluge, through a right. flood. Right. So so the, they are significant for that. Also, it's interesting because the genealogies are structured. Uh, here's an interesting word for mnemonic purposes. Right. Or they are structured in a way where they can be easily remembered or grasped by the um, by the Israeli community and by the rabbinic community, so that they were written in a way where they were they would be in cadence, or they would have a certain beat, if you will, and they would have a certain number. So when you said them, uh, they they would kind of read much like this. Uh, now, these are the general... Are you, you going to start rapping now or something? No, with your believe cadence? me, that is not okay. my spiritual or <laughs> carnal gift. <laughs> In verse number 18, now, these are the generations of Ferez. To Ferez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab, and Aminadab, Nash, Nashan, and to Nashan, Salman. Salman was born Boaz, and Boaz, Ovad, or Aved, and to Aved, Yassi, and to Yassi, David. And so there would be, these would be easily memorable because of the cadence and also the number of them. It's also interesting that uh, uh, the need and the nature of a genealogy changed uh, both before uh, the the Babylonian exile and afterward. Right. Now, you'll see this because uh, before the exile, they are concerned with family and pedigree, right. namely yeah. Where did you come from? Who are you? Right. Because it wasn't just a personal introduction. You came with a clan. You came with a family, as it were. Right. And so now I know whose you are. Now I want to know what was the quality of the people you came from. Right. But, well, well, go on. I'm, but then after the exile, like for instance, with Ezra and right, Nehemiah, right. the significance now is let's make sure you came from a pure line of how, priesthood. How, yeah, that's, that's significant. When they come back and they rebuild the temple, they want to make sure, okay, are you actually qualified to be a priest? Because are you in the right, in the right family? So the genealogy afterwards is really to give credence to your um, permission or your ability or your um, uh, to fill in a certain role. Can you fill in a certain role by virtue of the fact you are in the right family because that's significant to them because of how they got into, you know, into the exile in the beginning. But, but so in this, case, in this sense, in one sense, this is establishing David as, okay, he is, he's rightful to be king, but we want to see the pedigree where he came from. And in one sense, okay, David isn't, he doesn't, he's brand new to royalty. Like when God anoints David to be king, it's not that he came from his dad being king. His dad wasn't royalty and his grandfather wasn't royalty and his great-grandfather and great-great, you know, back to Ruth. 
they weren't royalty in the sense that you would think royalty, but the quality of the person that they were, that they, uh, that they, that they were, was very significant. And so you have this, this question, okay, David, he's God's anointed, and we're not certain about him because, hmm, we understand that a relative back in his history was really, was a Moabite, and Moabites weren't that great, but then you read the story of what kind of Moabite she was, it changes things, and it sort of sort of gives credence to the character of David, which I think is one sense of, of proving. It's almost as if they're trying to um, correct maybe bad assumptions of his heritage, as if to say, no, oh, he comes from good heritage, and Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi are all faithful to God in each individual ways, and they are faithful to one another, and they have hesed, and yet... They're, they have different aspects of things that David will present himself through his life as well. Well, this is quite extraordinary because um, on an ancient Near Eastern historical perspective, if you had more than four names that you could trace yourself back to in literature, you were a phenomenal person. Yeah. It meant that you were someone significant. Yeah. Uh, but not only is that important because this is 10 names here. So it says that he's extraordinary. But as you said earlier, it was intended to establish, particularly for monarchical purposes or for a king and kingdom purpose, it was intended to establish credulity or credibility. Now, now you have to look at this because David is given a genealogy. Right. Who was king before David? Saul. He never had a genealogy no. given to him in Scripture. No. It's as though what happened to Poloni Almoni in the yeah. text yep. where he was robbed of a name. Right. And I don't mean robbed as though God took from him wrongly. No, his name was taken so that he was erased from history in, in a in a monarchical stand from a monarchical standpoint. It is as though God wiped out Saul's lineage going backward and forward in a sense that said he's the illegitimate. Right. David is the legitimate and, and always intended by God to sit on the throne. And the thing that Polonia Maloney or Mr. So-and-so or Mr. Baloney, whatever you want to call him, what he was most afraid of, in losing, it was losing his name, losing his heritage. because And so he decided to withhold this love, this, this self-sacrificing act that happens as a result of that. In other words, he, he, because he was afraid of, doing, of losing that, and he acted in such a self-preserving way, he ended up losing his name. But you, you, we just, you just point something out, the, the significance of, of, of setting up, of having a genealogy to sort of give the, the, the reason or the proof of, of this, this kingship, of proving that this person was worthy to be king, right? Where David obviously is the second king of, of Israel and he's the poster child of of. of Old Testament kings. But it's it's interesting that that's exactly how Matthew starts his gospel. And he starts his gospel saying, this is the genealogy, right? This is the, let me just turn to it and read exactly what he says, because it's very significant that Matthew starts his gospel in this particular way. He says, bear with me because my pages are sticking together. And I know this by heart, but I don't want to misquote it. It says, the book of the genealogy, that's the word Genesis, basically, in, uh, in Greek. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right there, okay? And then he goes on to the, this long genealogy, tracing all the way back. 
it's significant that, that, that Matthew wants to sort of say, this Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David. How has he proven that? By presenting us with a genealogy, both to prove, yeah, he belongs because he definitely is the son of David. Um, he belongs to, to that, that pedigree. That genealogy was um, in showing that Jesus is the rightful king. And Jesus is the rightful king because he belongs to the son. He is the son of David. And Jesus, or uh, as the Messiah, as, uh, as God promised David, that somebody after you, a son in your line, will be my king, God says. And this is what Matthew does with this genealogy. So, I don't know about you, I like genealogy. Well, this now. is important because yes. here's what happens with this genealogy. What you see are all of these names leading to David. Now, that's important because, again, it's goal is to establish a historicity, a familial lineage or line, as well as a pedigree. This is, this is the, 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 the catch of this in one way. The idea is you don't have that for Saul going backward. No. You don't have that for Saul going forward. Of course, you can trace the line, but scripture is silent about it. Later on, the apostle Paul, who was Rob Shaul, will later on say, hey, I'm a Benjamite. Uh, and, and our tribe from is Benjamin. significant because the first king was from ours. But what you don't see is this continuity of establishment with that, right. which argues what? It argues, John, that, that David can claim God was at work in my family to bring my leadership about. Right. You can go back over a period of 800 years and God was at work. God always intended David to be the uncontested king of the unified nation. And you know what's interesting? Is that he was not anybody's choice. He was not. He was not the people's choice. He was not his father's choice. He was not Samuel's choice. Samuel's choice. The people. Okay, Saul, tall, dark, and handsome, so to speak. You know, he is the people's choice in one sense. He is. He is what we think we would picture as. Who would we want to be our leader? We would want Captain America or Iron Man or wh- whatever. Fill in the blank of your superhero. Batman in your case. Someone who builds somebody the resume. Somebody who fills the resume. They are six foot four, they're muscular, they they're intelligent, they have they're they're eloquent, you know, they're everything, they're strapping, you know, they they have everything going for them, you know, they're eloquent and they David's David isn't even on the radar screen, which tells you something. That the peop the kind of person that we think we need to lead us and the kind of people that we think we think that we'll do the job is often not even in a consideration in God's mind. God allows a king in, 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 in Israel, but the choice of David is not on their mind. It's not even on Samuel's mind. It's not as, because it's not on Jesse's mind. He's got seven sons or eight sons, including David. And David's sort of the leftover. What's also interesting, fast forward to Jesus Christ. He's not even on any of their, their minds. Where's the one who's born king of the Jews? Um, he's in Bethlehem somewhere. And he's a baby, but nobody really believes him. He's not coming the way you know everybody else thought he would come. He's not the strong leader to kick out the Romans out of the you know out of Jerusalem and establish you know he doesn't fit those the what we we would think that would be the king. He fulfills it in a in a such a, a more powerful way. Because here's Jesus Christ who doesn't come and dominate men by force. He changes people's hearts. 
And that's how we conquers the world is by changing people's hearts for good. Well, I think it's also interesting, John, that when we're looking at his genealogy, particularly with an emphasis on pedigree, pure blood is is an essential. You don't want to put names in the the mix, as it were, that bring down the line. But what we see here is is part and parcel of the teasing out, as it were, of the Abrahamic covenant, Jew and Gentile, and what the Apostle Paul cries concerning uh, in Ephesians 3. Namely, if you look at David, does he have pure Israelites in his lineage? Yes, but he also has Gentiles. Right. Yes, and he is the quintessential king of the nation. And he has questionable people. You know, we, t- we talk about Perez, okay? How would he come about? Well... Um, Judah, you know, Judah's son dies, and he doesn't want to give his his other son to fulfill the Levite marriage thing. And of course, Tamar has to go and act like she's a prostitute to get pregnant with Judah because she understands that that her family will die off unless something happens. And the, and of course, it's very not pretty circumstances, right? She has to dress as a harlot, you know, and gets pregnant with Judah's child. And of course, in the end, Judah says she was more righteous than I was, right? Well, in one sense, there is a parallel between that and Ruth, where there's this Leverite marriage thing, and there's, but then sort of there's this, it's been redeemed because now you have, you don't have any disguise of, of Ruth's dressing as a, as, a, as a harlot or anything like that. You have now a little bit more righteous ways, let's say, but it's still part of the history. As if to say, I, I'm not going to forget that history. That history is important, but there's a redemptive quality to it. There's there's a redeeming of that history, and you have that in the pedigree in the line of, of David, and you have it in Jesus as well, where you have people that are of sort of, of questionable backgrounds that are included in his own line. As if Jesus is saying, I associate with with the sinners. I associate with people who mess up. That's why he he why he he stands in the line with sinners to be baptized by John because he stands and he says I'm associate with with people that have made mistakes that have maybe not had the best history maybe have messed up in the past I'm going to stand with them and, and stand as being one of them though I'm not a sinner Jesus says I still stand with them that's powerful. It is powerful. I, I, the, the goal then of, of this, one of, one of the aspects is when you see a genealogy of this strength, namely replete with persons of courage, character, competence, it's intending for you to ask, what will that last person be like? Yes. It's intended to build an expectancy and anticipation, dare I say, an excitement, not a sleeping pill, right. but, an, but an excitement to say, ooh, if God is doing that, what will David look like? Right. It, it's, it's also intended to suggest that this whole Davidic narrative is bleeding with the sovereign providential hand of God all over the pages. Right. In other words, where does David come from? He comes from that place or that family that God wants him to come from. In other words, what David would become in character, in competence, in courage is not incidental or accidental on a sovereign level or on an anthropological level. God was in the inner working, seeing to it that he would be the extraordinary 
quintessential king. And the thing that sets David apart isn't just his pedigree or his, his heritage and the genealogy. The thing that really sets him apart is, is his heart for God. That, you know, that despite who he was or who he came from, whether he came from a Moabite, you know, and whether that was a good thing. And the same thing with Jesus. You know, he came from a mother who was wed to be married, but yet they didn't really consummate. But the, So what happened? She's a teenager who got pregnant. There's questionable circumstances. There's Jesus and David had that thing of peril. There's questionable, you know, history of, of where they come from. But what set them apart, what sets David apart is his heart for God. That despite where you come from, despite your circumstances, you can't, well, you, what you can't change, it is, it is this heart for God that stands out, this, this, this love for God. And God says, this man is after my own heart. Despite, despite the questionableness of his, of his family and, and the mistakes that have happened in his past and uncle so-and-so and grandma so-and-so and whatever they did, his heart for God is really what stands out. And that can erase and wipe clean any negativity or what's the word I'm looking for? Any negativity of, of, of a past that you can't get away from. Because like, I will always be this. But God says, no, I've given you a new heart. I've given you a new spirit. I've given you a new life. And God honors that. And he has not forgotten the things of the past, but he makes things all new. The things of the past of your history really don't matter. Because what matters is your heart for God. And what matters is, is what is the desires that you have for the Lord. And he can redeem any past. You could be a harlot. You could be an ex-prostitute. You can be a ex-whatever. God doesn't care because he can still use that. He's looking for people that will honor him. He's looking for people that will purely love him, that will be sincere with him, that will worship him. Whoever you are and from wherever you come, there's a purpose and you having been born to whom you were born, the giftings that God entrusted to your family and the weaknesses thereof, the most important thing to be said concerning it is not how it stifled you or forwarded you, but how God uses it to form you into the man or woman that he has destined for you to be. Thank you again for listening to Living Truth with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. If you would like to hear this podcast again or previous episodes, you may do so at passionforhisword.com. That's passionforhisword.com. You may also like us on Facebook at Living Truth Radio Broadcast. That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Again, our prayer for you is that God would sanctify you in truth, for His Word is truth.